0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org.
1: Share with a friend. See you soon. A reading from the book of Acts. Meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed all around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? He asked, who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Ananias. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He lay his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. Then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment for silent reflection.
0: Let's pray together. Gracious God in the silence of this place. We become more aware of how fast our lives move. We are taught and encouraged to strive and achieve, to entertain ourselves as much as possible, to look good at all costs, and if we can't look good, at least don't look bad. We're taught that we're on our own, and it's driving us to anxiety and exhaustion, in a city full of people, it's so easy to feel completely alone. We come from a diversity of backgrounds and experiences in this very moment, believing and unbelieving, some of us somewhere in between. We're in different stages of life, some of us enjoying a modicum of success or affluence or comfort. Others of us, confused or scared or hurt. Most of us a mixture. But however we find ourselves right now, right here, help us to see that we have far more in common than we realize. That you see us in all our complexity, all our contradictions, all the ways we get it and all the ways we don't get it. And your response is to move toward us in sacrificial, self-giving love in the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we pray now that you would do perhaps the most difficult miracle of all, that you would convince us of your great love for us in a way that transforms our lives, break through with the power of your Holy Spirit, and teach us in a way that our lives would be renewed and this world would be transformed. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, friends, it's summer and it's been a great swimming season, so I'm starting with another swimming story. You're welcome. I want to thank Jim Poyer for adopting me into the illustrious Dawn Patrol that swims at La Jolla Cove Monday, Wednesday, Friday at, you guessed it, Dawn. Um, th- I could tell you stories about these people forever, and some of you are like, no, Matt, you have told us stories about these people forever, but we talk about what's important to us. That's why I talk about Jesus and swimming and Jim. So Monday we were out swimming and we ran into some friends at about the quarter mile buoy and we start chatting and I looked over and saw a bunch of kelp clumps, kelp patties they're called. And so we know that where there is kelp there are fish and I'm chatting with everyone I said let's go explore the kelp patties and see what's out there. So we swim out away from the shore another, I don't know, quarter mile or so, maybe less. And Immediately, I mean, the, the clarity of the water was dazzling, and we were surrounded by schools of beautiful fish everywhere. Our eyes were focused probably on the first five feet of depth, because that's where most of the fish were, when after several minutes, a friend exclaimed, there are sharks in this water right now. As we let our gaze focus out to about 10 feet, we realized below us we're swimming schools of taupe sharks, which are beautiful gray sharks. The biggest ones are about me. Now I'm used to seeing these sharks in the water in twos or threes. I stopped counting at 20 or 30. It was like like a Discovery Channel video or like swimming in the Birch Aquarium with sharks everywhere. And then we died. No, we didn't die, I made it, I'm right here. So we swam back, we told the story And the next Wednesday, the next, you know, two days later, I said to Jim, I know where there are a bunch of sharks. Let's go look for them. So we went out to the same spot, the same kelp. The only difference was the light wasn't making its way through the water. There wasn't as much visibility. And so though we knew there were dozens of sharks just below us, we couldn't see them. The only thing more terrifying than being in the water with three dozen sharks and seeing them is being in the same water with the same sharks and not being able to see them. And the light made all the difference. The light enables you to see both the beauty around you and the potential danger around you. When the lighting conditions are right, you can see the world as it truly is. We come upon a story today of who will, the, the man named Saul, who will later be known as Paul. And this is a story of seeing the light. This is a story where someone had what we might call a conversion experience, where he saw the light and his entire life was transformed. Now, I realize as soon as I say the word conversion, many of you say, oh, hold on, hold on, Pastor Matt, that is what I hate about organized religion, conversion. Conversion being the process where one person takes their thoughts and beliefs and shoves it down the throat of somebody else. No, thank you. And let me just say, I hear you, I've seen that, and this church is committed to not being a part of that way. Scriptures say his kindness leads us to turn to God, not our pressure or our manipulation. But I'd also make the case that everybody in this room is constantly being converted to something. Nobody gets a pass on that. It's not like the religious people are being converted and everybody else is just in some neutral kind of philosophical Switzerland where there's no conversion going on. This is going to be more annoying to to me and everybody else than, yeah, that would be great. Um, Let me see. If I hold this, will this be fine, Todd? Let's give it one more shot But be ready. I think it's just this. Testing one, two. Let's try it. If not, run on over and we'll make that happen. Everyone's being converted in one way or the other. I mean, a funny example of that would be, this was an article written in The Atlantic a little while ago when the author says, you always know if someone goes to, has gone to Harvard or does CrossFit. They'll tell you, right? He says, uh, CrossFit is his favorite example, the author's favorite example of a trend. He has noticed how in the midst of the decline of religious affiliation in America and the rise of isolation and loneliness, many non-religious communities are functioning in a way that looks a little bit religious. And he explained the idea at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Now, here's the interesting thing to me, and I'll I'll take that microphone, Todd. Here's the interesting thing. One of the franchise owners says, thank you, I want people to know that CrossFit truly is for everyone. I want to put it all on the line and open my affiliate because I believe in every part of CrossFit and I want to share that with people. You know what we call that? An evangelist. Right? When I do executive coaching, I'll go to the top floor of some big building in a big city and there will be someone there whose job is to be the evangelist for the software or for the medical devices or for the, you know, the financial services or whatever. You're always being converted. The question is, are you aware of to what you are being converted? To say that there is no such thing as God and you are all on your own is a worldview. Are you being converted to that? Everyone is in a process of transformation. The question is, are you aware of what's working on you? Are you consciously aware of the person that you are becoming? And so we meet this guy named Saul. We met Saul last week when Stephen, who became the first martyr killed for his faith, was Stones were thrown at him, and it says, and his murderers laid their jackets at the feet of a man named Saul. Now our story picks up. Saul, still breathing threats of murderous intent, Saul has blood on his hands. Saul has violence in his mind, and he's going to Damascus. Damascus is the world's oldest, longest, continually inhabited city. I had a friend from Damascus. He proudly pointed out that that street called Straight still exists in Damascus to this day. It's continuously been inhabited. And Damascus was known back then as a place where religious refugees could be harbored because the Roman Empire actually had a policy of extradition Among the religions, because this is part of their assimilation, where if you were a Jew from Jerusalem, and you had gone to another city, and the temple elites said, we have a case against that person, we need them back in Jerusalem, the Roman Empire would extradite you back to Jerusalem. They'd send you back, but Damascus would harbor you. And so Christians who do not set out to start a new religion but to follow an old promise, what's more Jewish than following the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, are being expelled from the city because it's dangerous and many of them go to Damascus. And now Paul is on what he might call a spiritual journey. I'm going to interface uh, and interweave Paul and Saul. Later we'll learn that Saul's name is changed to Paul. And so Saul is going to Damascus, let's say for... Purpose of of travel, religious. But he's not on a spiritual pilgrimage. He is on a quest to lock up and murder people in the name of his understanding of who God is. And on his way to Damascus, he sees this light. And he's knocked down by the overwhelming presence of God's grace that comes into his violent world. Paul doesn't make it happen. Paul's not looking for God. God always moves first. And God moves into Paul's life at a moment he would least expect it. We might call that the preemptive love of God. God was thinking about Saul long before Saul was thinking about God in any way that God had actually been revealed to him. God's grace moves first, always. You know what that means? If you are investigating Christianity... If you're wondering if you could actually follow Jesus and call yourself a Christian, it means on one hand, you can relax. Because the process of becoming a Christian is not the ability to answer every question under the sun. The process of becoming a Christian is opening yourself up to realize that God is already moving toward you right now. The hardest thing perhaps for you to do is to actually let your guard down and give God access to every aspect of your life. I'd make the case that the fact you're a part of this church service right now, the fact that you are listening is evidence that God is already doing something in your life to wake you up to God's grace. And so the challenge is to open yourself up to that. This also means, friends, that if you're a Christian, that the loudest voice that you want to tune yourself to be able to hear is, in Christ you are accepted, in Christ you are approved, in Christ you are beloved, and let that drill deep down into your heart until it becomes as much a part of you as the air you breathe, because that is your true identity. Like I said before, we're always being converted to other identities. You are the clothes you wear. You are the school that you attend. You are the degree that you have. You are the tax bracket that you file under. You are the car that you pull up to the curb in. You are weighed and valued based on your appearance. You are judged based on the person who is on your arm at the party or not on your arm at the party. All sorts of competing identities. But a Christian can say, the truest thing about me is I'm beloved, I'm approved, and I'm accepted. Here's a diagnostic question. Christian friends, I I like to ask this question of myself and others. How do you know that you're a Christian? Now, if you respond immediately by saying, I know that I'm a Christian because I go to church regularly, pray regularly, I read my Bible regularly, I give over 10% of my income to the work of God in this world, I try to do all the things that God calls me to do, and I try to not do all the things that God says not to do, and because of that, I know I'm a Christian. I would say, not bad, but it gets much better than that. Christian friends, here's how you know that you are approved and accepted and beloved by God. A Christian will say, are you a Christian? I am. It's a miracle that I'm a Christian because I don't do the things I should always do. And sometimes I do the things I shouldn't do. And I forget to pray all the time. And the miracle is that God has broken through in Jesus Christ and will never let me go. The miracle of God's grace always goes first. Don't you see? If you have it the other way and it's all about you and your acts and your works and your faithfulness, A, that's exhausting, but B, you've got the telescope pointed the wrong direction. It's making you big and God small. But if you can say, God holds me in the palm of God's hand, and how do I know that God would never leave me or forsake me? On the cross, he had the chance to do it and chose not to. He stayed for me. He never abandon me. Don't you see that is the most secure place you can ever be in life? From there, you can go and give generously. You can go and love recklessly. You can go and put yourself out. You can work really well in your career because you want to strive for excellence because God has given you gifts to use. But you don't need to work solely for the approval of your boss or your colleagues. A new freedom altogether. Humility and gratitude. You know, when Saul sees the light, it means that he starts to see everything else differently. It says that something, when Ananias went and prayed for him, something like scales fell from in front of his eyes. I'm getting the picture of the reptile exhibit at the San Diego Zoo, and invariably one of those reptiles is molting, and you see that skin over the eyes, and they just can't see right. They can see light, but they're not going to make out a predator. They're not going to make out food. Something like scales fell from his eyes. And this is a physical symbol of a spiritual reality. That ironically, though Saul had fine eyesight in terms of the rods and cones and retina and all of the ways that those things work, he was stumbling around in the dark. He was literally murdering the people of God in the name of God. It doesn't get much more lost than that. He's stumbling in the dark, and Jesus comes to him, and invites him on a new journey. I want you to picture Saul, who we learned later had studied under uh, a famous rabbi named Gamaliel. This would be like saying, you know, I studied, um, you know, I studied medicine under Francis Collins at you know, Harvard or whatever. Like He was educated in the ways of his religion. And still he was surprised when he met God. In fact, on that road, he's awaiting the Messiah, as all good Jews would have been, and Jesus comes to him and he says, who are you? And the Lord says, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And I want you to imagine the shock of Saul because this, and this is the point, this expands and goes against all of his preconceived categories for who God is and what it would be like to meet God. He understood as a good Jewish man that you would never meet Yahweh, the one true God, on a road to Damascus. Where do you go to meet Yahweh? The temple. He, he would understand that Yahweh, the, um, the one who always has been and always is and always will be, the I am that I am, would never take the form of a finite human being trapped in flesh. And he has to expand all of his categories. That the sacrificial system of the temple to take away the sins of the community is now fully fulfilled in the one true sacrifice, Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. This stuff is blowing Saul's mind. And he has a couple choices here. He can put his fingers in his ears and close his eyes again and go on stumbling. Or he can do what scripture calls The Greek word is metanoia. We translate it as repent. It's actually a poor translation. Metanoia is two Greek words. Meta means change. Noia means the way you think. He can change the way he thinks. As one translator says, to repent, to have metanoia, is to reevaluate your entire direction in light of new, true information. When Florence and I had gotten married in 2005, we spent five days in the Florida Keys and five days at Mammoth Mountain. We had just moved to San Francisco and I knew how to get to Mammoth Mountain from San Diego. I'd never gone from San Francisco before. Back then there were no iPhones, they were still a few years off. And so you would go to a website called MapQuest and you would put in the direction to which you, I mean before that it was Thomas Brothers Guides and we can get into all that. MapQuest. You put in the address, and then you print out everything, and you have someone in the car reading to you the next directions. And so we did the route for MapQuest on about January 10th, 2005. What MapQuest didn't consider was it was the middle of the winter, and you can't go through this pass in the middle of the winter because it is snowed in. And so Florence and I, these two young newlyweds, in my 1993 Toyota Celica convertible are in a snowstorm somewhere in the darkness of Yosemite, nowhere near Tahoe. Furthermore, the pass is closed. So we had to backtrack, found a general store. The kind person behind the counter generally informed us we were going the wrong direction, and we had a choice. We could stand on the authority of MapQuest and freeze to death, or we could metanoia. We could repent, we could turn around, we got new information that was actually accurate to the reality of this world and we turned around and we ended up making it safely to our destination. Paul is having one of those moments where he's getting new information. God is far bigger, more grand, more welcoming, more loving, more caring than you ever imagined and he includes all these other people that you previously would have done violence against. He has an expansive moment Saul only meets God when he allows God to contradict everything he thought that he knew about God. Now, the modern San Diego philosophical sense, worldview sense, may not be the same as a Jewish man who lived in the ancient Near East named Saul, but we do have our own. A researcher at the University of Notre Dame named Christian Smith talks about how the kind of the, the milieu of american philosophy is what he calls moralistic therapeutic deism moralistic therapeutic deism moralistic based on morals based on what's right and what's wrong. Therapeutic, based on ultimately being healed up, but really what makes you feel the best. And then deism, a general sense that there is a God out there, but that God's not all that active in your life, except for what is right and wrong in your own personal life, moralistic, and what's going to make you feel better. Live your best life now. Therapeutic. Because we all kind of have that in the air that we breathe. So maybe we would say conservatives then will focus on the moralistic part. God is most concerned with you living a righteous life, being a moral person, and doing the right thing. Liberals would say that God is most concerned with social justice in this world. Social justice is what love looks like in public. And Jesus says, I'm concerned with both. There's never a choice between the left and the right because Jesus is from above, and he calls us to a greater vision of this world. In other words, if you have a view of God that agrees with all of your major points of what you agree with, that likes all of the people that you like, that hates all the people you hate, you might be creating a God in your own image. That God can generally encourage you, make you feel better about yourself when things go well that God will never challenge you toward life transformation. That God will never be able to comfort you when things get really difficult in your life. Or maybe on the other hand, maybe you're recognizing it's not that I've created a God in my own image and likeness that happens to agree with everything I agree with. Maybe you're realizing you've created a God in your mind who's the opposite, who's an angry parent, who's a really bad boss, who's a mean dictator, who's waiting for you to mess up so that he can crush you or will tax you beyond anything you're able to give and so you're running from that God. You are invited this morning to have an experience like Saul on the road to Damascus to see a God whose love is far more expansive than you could ever imagine. Martin Luther, the reformer, said, all of life is a journey of metanoia. All of life is a journey of repentance. When you come to Christ the first time, you turn toward that new information that Jesus is the light of the world. And for a Christian, you do it every day of your life after that. And going back to my MapQuest example there in the Sierra Nevadas, maybe it is like having an actual Google Maps on your phone, and when you get it wrong and you leave the road, what does it say? Recalculating. 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 So a Christian is not the one who can say, I am going to stay on the path. I'm going to stay on the straight and narrow. A Christian is one who can say, Jesus is the path. And so through all the turns and twists in this life, my calling is to stay as close to Jesus as possible. And when I realize I've lost my way, it's okay. I'll look for the message that says recalculating. Where are you called to recalculate right now? The other thing I learned about losing our way is that um, it's better to catch it early. Going the wrong direction for three minutes is a lot more easy to correct than going the wrong direction for three hours. And I think that's why one of the reasons we come together on Sundays, to consistently put back that true north, that north star of God's grace, so that we can often recalculate and say, how do I walk according to that truth? I mean, that's really what it's all about on Sunday mornings. In the word, in the sacrament, in the songs, in the prayers. It's all about allowing our senses to be flooded with the grace and truth of God so we can recalculate together. Which brings me uh, to this next point, which is it happens in community. As one friend used to tell me, Christianity is inherently plural. Saul's life is transformed because Ananias said yes. Can you imagine if Ananias wasn't home? Like he had gone on a trip and Saul just showed up and still had the scales on his eye? How would this story end? Saul's life was transformed. The world was transformed because Saul becomes Paul. Paul becomes one of the most influential church planters in human history. Saul's life was transformed because Ananias said yes. In Galatians, Paul tells us that he spent three years in this region with people like Ananias. And I want you to notice in verse 17, how does Ananias approach Saul? Not you traitorous murderer. Not you fool who's obviously on the wrong side of history. Brother Saul. Brother Saul. You who would have sought to undo me in your foolishness, I still call my brother. The sworn enemy of Ananias. But because of Jesus, they've become brothers. This is what God does. Luke, the writer of Acts, wants us to see how God undoes God's enemies. He makes them friends through grace. I mean, that's what we're really doing when we, next Saturday when we get together for Know Your Neighbor out here. We're taking people who are completely different worlds apart, although they may live on the same block, and bringing them together around food and music and joy. My brother, my sister, a new family all together, Note when Jesus confronts Saul and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Hold on to that. Why do you persecute me? Think about it for a second. Was Saul, perse- had Saul ever met Jesus in the flesh? No. Saul was persecuting the church. Saul was persecuting the Christians. But what did Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? What does that mean? It means that Jesus' identity and presence is so wrapped up in the life of the church that when the church hurts, Jesus feels it. That's heady stuff. Now, we have been educated in a post-enlightenment, individualistic, capitalistic society where it's the antithesis of that. Because what it says is this. If you are a Christian, and you want to grow, or you want to grow in connection with God through Jesus, and your pathway for doing that, by choice, some people have no choice, by choice, your pathway to do that is you'd say, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a part of any Christian community. My teaching is from a podcast. My worship music is from a Spotify account. Listen, I am not saying you're not a Christian. I don't know. Not my job. I can guarantee you your experience of Jesus is something that the early church wouldn't have recognized. Because Jesus says, if you want to know me, get to know me in the midst of my people. Now, I realize as I say that, there are as many caveats for that as there are stories in this room and people joining online. Some of you have tried to become a part of a church before, and you were hurt and you're saying, I don't want that. Some of you find this church to be a safe place where you can actually come and try on Christianity again. So I want you to know, I'm not, put, I'm not putting my thumb on you, but I, I do want to open your eyes to say, it is the courageous path to bind yourself together in a diverse group of people like this that stumble two steps forward and one step back, but experience the grace of God in the midst of it all. Saul experiences grace in community. I mean, this is why we try to have, you know, meaningful opportunities not only for social meetups, but our community groups when they start back up in the fall. Maybe one action step right now would just be kind of save Wednesday evenings. We'll have our community groups start up in a week, uh, in a month, as we come closer to God and to each other. Because Saul experiences grace, but experiences it in community, and then it launches him forward in mission, Maybe we would say he's reunited with God, reconnected in community, and redirected outward in mission to serve those around him. Where do we see this? And we'll close with this. Saul is united to Christ and redirected in mission. In verse 15, Jesus says, Saul is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the people of Israel. And Saul does. In Galatians 11, Saul says, he describes himself as, God set me apart since birth, called me by his grace. God was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What's going on here? This is the description of someone experiencing calling, purpose direction that's bigger than his own agenda and his own existential moment. And here's the thing to notice. It has nothing to do with his worthiness or his preparation. God calls who God will call and then prepares you along the way. So the question is not entirely what are you ready to do? The question is what is God calling you to do? And that's the amazing thing. I mean, let's just use uh, comfort zone as an example. I see this all the time. The interesting thing about comfort zone is if, you know, comfort zone is the amount to which you are comfortable pushing yourself beyond your boundaries. If you will just push a little bit and stay there, you know what happens? Your comfort zone expands. And then you push further, and then you push further. It's the same thing with trusting in God together. And again, this is why they all interlace, why we need community to encourage each other, support each other, to challenge each other, to walk together. The question is, where are you called? Now, for someone it might be, you know, oh my gosh, I'm actually called into a different career path. For most of us, it might not be that dramatic. It might be, how are you called to show up for your family today? How are you called to show up at work tomorrow? How are you called to see the people that live in your building or on your block, in your neighborhood? How are you called? Jesus says, I will show Saul how much he will suffer for my name. There's a cost to it. Christianity is brutally honest. There is a cost to following Jesus. To living according to the gospel of grace that is right side up in a world that is so upside down. There's a cost. He's going to, maybe we'd say, he's going to imitate Jesus' suffering love of giving himself in this world. And I'll close with this. See, Saul is one of these dramatic stories of conversion where he was engaging in violence against God's people, sees the light, and his life is transformed in the moment. Okay? That's one example of transformation. But scripture is full of many other stories of transformation. People like Peter, one of the first apostles, whose life is two steps forward and one step back. Peter, in this moment of courage and generosity, when Jesus says in Luke 5, Give up everything and follow me. Give up the family business. And he does. Later on, Peter says, Jesus, you are the Christ. But it's not that much later until Jesus has to turn to him and say, get behind me, Satan. Okay? These are some high highs and some low lows. This is Peter who said, no matter what, I will never deny you. And within the same day, denied even knowing Jesus three times. This is Peter who was reinstated by Jesus, told that he's the beloved three times and sent to care for the people of God. And here's the point. Maybe your transformation experience will be more like Paul. You were one way, now you're another way. My experience in San Diego in our particular day is it's a lot more like Peter. Two steps forward, one step back, but we walk together. The question is, what are you being converted to? Who are you becoming? And the invitation is, to recalculate your life right now based on new information. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he calls you his own. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do pray that you would press the reality of your resurrection deep into our lives. We pray that you would open our eyes and our ears, our minds and our hearts to that grace now. That you'd reunite us with yourself Reconnect us more deeply in community and redirect us outward in mission to serve all your people. We pray all these things for our good and for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon.